This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Jeff Begays, and on this edition of America Changed Forever from CBS News Radio, Texas's new abortion law is forcing women to flee the state in search of clinics in other states. Some clinics can't keep up with demand. Coming up, we're going to talk to one of the main sponsors of this new legislation in Texas. We're optimistic. The Supreme Court will continue to move in the right direction and ultimately get rid of Roe versus Wade. We're going to hear from Planned Parenthood. We are preparing for whatever outcome and what will need to be rebuilt should the Supreme Court decide to overturn Roe. The Supreme Court analyst charts the way forward. That's not something the court can fix. That's something that the court has to live with, and that's the real danger here. Now to our interview with Texas State Senator Brian Hughes, who is the author of the law banning most abortions in Texas. Senator Hughes, thanks for being with us. Why did you want to author an abortion bill that some people have called extreme? And that may be an understatement in their view. So the right to life is what first motivated me to get involved in politics. When I was a young man, high school student, and uh, learned about what abortion was and you know, the little baby growing inside her mother's womb and, and, and what abortion means and, and taking that life. It, it moved me. It motivated me. So I began to volunteer on campaigns, get involved. And so ever since I've been uh, in the Texas legislature, I've worked on pro-life legislation. So uh, this uh, uh, was no surprise to folks who've seen bills that we have filed and, and passed before. I noticed that you're also an attorney. Well, I've practiced law for a while now. And one uh uniqueness of this law, of course, is the private citizen enforcement mechanism. And that's nothing new. You know, it goes back to the English common law, the concept of key TAM, uh, whereby individuals, private citizens can bring actions on behalf of the common good, on behalf of the public. Uh, In the federal statutes, we have the Federal False Claims Act. And if you or I or anyone uh, can prove that someone is defrauding the government, we can bring a civil claim and be rewarded for that. Every state has consumer protection laws uh, based on this. In fact, our Medicaid fraud statute in Texas, we borrowed some of the language from that statute because it provides any person can bring a civil claim to right that wrong. So, yes, as a lawyer, I'm familiar with the concept of of citizen enforcement, of consumer protection, common good uh, legislation. And, uh, yes, I I can't take all the credit. Of course, there were very smart lawyers and uh, Supreme Court scholar uh, who worked on this on this law. But you're right. As a lawyer, I had a general grasp of what we were doing and able to explain it to people. And, and thankfully, we were able to convince our friends in the legislature to, to pass it. So I gather you knew exactly what you were doing when you came up with this law. So this law was intended to protect a little baby inside her mother's womb when there's a heartbeat. I think most people perceive with their heads and, yes, with their hearts, that that heartbeat is the universal sign of life. And so that's what this bill is intended to do. Now, what often gets lost is something that we do in Texas in the Alternatives to Abortion program. Uh, We're concerned about the little baby in her mother's womb. 
we're also concerned about the mother. And so in this last budget, we increased funding to $100 million for this program called Alternatives to Abortion. And it helps those mothers in difficult situations, uh, unplanned pregnancies, not sure what their choices are, gives them tangible help, counseling, encouragement. Also, uh, when the baby comes along, uh, you know, diapers, baby formula, car seats, parenting classes, social services, uh, job placement. Uh, in the last budget cycle, this program helped 100,000 expectant mothers and adoptive parents. So we often get this false dichotomy that we have to choose between the mother and the little unborn baby. But we can do both. We can protect the baby's life while we love and support and help the mother. And so the intent of this law is to do just that. I think many people were caught by surprise because this law took effect. What we've become accustomed to is passing a pro-life law, which is then blocked by the courts before it takes effect. And then after a couple of three or four years or more, we get a ruling from the Supreme Court on what we can do. This bill was written to take effect immediately, immediately upon September 1st. And and so we're, we're glad it did. When you watch those images of women giving interviews in other states because they've had to travel hundreds, if not thousands of miles to get help as a Texan, how do you feel about that? There's not a more difficult, a more visceral question we deal with uh, in public policy than this one, uh, the right to life or the woman's right to choose. Uh, we get that. And we've uh, spoken to many women, listened to many women about this. You probably know that the sponsor of this bill in the Texas House Representative Shelby Slauson, a very sharp lawyer, happens to be a woman, a mother, uh, a, a daughter, a granddaughter uh, in the Texas Senate. We have a number of female senators, and you may know the majority of the female senators in Texas voted for this bill. So we understand it's a terribly divisive and difficult issue. If we believe, if we believe that little baby growing inside her mother's womb, if we believe she is a human being worthy of protection, then we have to protect that life. And so we do that in love and, and with all the help and support we can give. But ultimately, is that a human being or not? If that's a human being growing inside her mother's body, then she's got to be protected. There are already a lot of challenges to this law. Do you expect it to get struck down at some point? Uh, we wrote this law considering every Supreme Court opinion on abortion, every circuit court opinion, uh, every statute, uh, a lot of history. And so uh, we recognize that bills like this are going to be challenged. We knew that going in, and that's why we drafted the bill the way we did. As you know, in 1973, seven old men, much older than me, seven old men on the Supreme Court made this decision for everyone else. They took this decision away from the people of the country with a radical law. In 1973, they departed from 200 years of precedent and created this right to abortion. They said it was in the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. It's not there. It's not even close. But that's what they did. But I think we realize that since 1973, the Supreme Court has been giving states more and more latitude to protect innocent human life. Uh, and part of that's because technology is changing so much. Roe versus Wade, in addition to being a poorly reasoned opinion, is also based on 1973 technology at best. Now we know so much more about the development of the baby inside her mother's womb. We also can see little babies live at earlier stages of development than we could in 1973. So uh, we believe the Supreme Court will continue to limit, to chip away at Roe versus Wade. We certainly hope they do. But yes, we welcome a challenging court. We wrote this bill knowing it will be challenged with the help of some very sharp lawyers inside and outside the legislature, very sharp lawyers on my team here in the Senate. 
So yes, we, we expect this, this bill to be in front of the courts and we expect it to be upheld. You called what the justices did back then radical. There are a lot of people who look at what you've done now in Texas and they call that radical. They call that extreme. How do you respond to that criticism? You must be getting an earful. We are. You know, it's interesting. If you look at our, at our emails and social media posts, uh, we've gotten hundreds and hundreds of, of, uh, of contacts. The majority of them have been in favor of the bill. If you look at our phone calls, they're running about 50-50. But yes, this is an issue that people are familiar with. They're aware of it. And uh, we understand uh, it was unconventional. It was creative. But I'll say this. This was no more creative than reading the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which says that no person may be deprived of due process of law. That's what the 14th Amendment says. And the Supreme Court in 1973 read that to create this right to kill a little unborn baby. That was wrong then. It's wrong today. Now, we operate within the law and within Supreme Court precedent. So we're optimistic the Supreme Court will continue to move in the right direction and ultimately get rid of Roe versus Wade. And, and you and I know this. If, if Roe versus Wade, when Roe versus Wade eventually goes away, as you know, that will not make abortion illegal. That will merely allow the states, allow the people acting through their state legislatures to make those decisions. You talked about, about people traveling, you know, before Roe versus Wade, California, and New York had much more permissive abortion laws than Texas, than Florida. And so that would be the future. Uh, if Roe versus Wade is continually scaled back or finally overruled, that just means the people of America acting through their state legislatures will be making these decisions, not a handful of judges. Some of your critics have alleged that this is a law that unfairly targets people of color or people who don't have the means to travel out of state. How do you respond to that? If we look at the current state of abortion in America, there's definitely a targeting of low-income women and women of color. Just look at where the abortion industry puts their facilities. They tend to be in those neighborhoods where incomes are lower, where there's less economic opportunity, and yes, where more women of color live. That's the real story. The abortion industry today targets low-income women and women of color. If this bill uh, becomes law in other states, we'll see federalism. We'll see American federalism. Uh, where people can vote with their feet. And if uh, I don't like the laws in Texas, I can move to California. Now, it's interesting. The opposite is what's been happening. You know this. People continue to leave states like New York and California and come to Texas in droves because they like the opportunity, the freedoms uh, that we enjoy here. And so we believe that's going to continue. And we believe that's the way it should be. Each state should have latitude uh, to make its own rules. Senator Hughes, thank you. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts for Slate. Dahlia, thanks for being with us. So what is next in the court system as far as the Texas abortion law is concerned? Well, uh, we now have not one but two plaintiffs who have taken up Texas's invitation to file a civil suit uh, against uh, provider Dr. Alan Braid, who uh, performed uh, an abortion after that six-week mark and essentially said, come after me, if you will. Um, so now I think there is going to be uh, protracted litigation in which uh, he will face uh, these civil lawsuits. He will raise constitutional claims. Uh, and as w that kind of works its way through the courts, we also have 
Um, the federal appeals court uh, is going to be making a decision about the underlying uh, objection to it. And in addition to that, we're running straight into a Supreme Court argument about a different abortion regulation in Mississippi, which may well actually get decided while Texas is still working its way through the system. So I think the answer is there's just a whole bunch of kind of whack-a-mole things happening right now, uh, and it's not clear at which of those stages and which court Texas is going to get resolved. All right, so let's take some of those cases that you mentioned individually. The ones filed this week, I believe they're from two people. Two people, and if I'm correct about this, I, you know, feel free to correct me, but these are two people who technically don't have standing in this case, but that is the thing about the Texas abortion law. That's exactly right. Texas, the law as it's written, SB8, kind of confers standing on everyone. Uh, and so uh, you have plaintiffs who are not even Texans. One is uh, just a guy in Arkansas. Someone else is someone else who's not in Texas. And sort of by the plain reading of the Texas law, those folks do have standing, or at least they can claim to have standing. Uh, the guy who is in Arkansas who sued Alan Braid uh, went so far as to say he just kind of wanted the $10,000 bounty uh, that comes with prevailing in such a suit. So I think you're exactly right. One of the things that's kind of tricky about this is that at least under the plain writing of the statute, it looks like absolutely anyone anywhere has standing to bring suit because Texas conferred it upon them. <laughs> Explain this $10,000 bounty. Well, bounty is uh, probably not the word that the drafters of SB8 would use. But what they did was they created a statute that is different from what other jurisdictions have done. So maybe to back up a tiny bit more, currently the law of the land across the country is that you cannot... Uh, uh, impede an abortion pre-viability, and that, that is set at about 24 weeks. A whole bunch of jurisdictions have tried to pass bans that are way before that viability marker, and so you have 15-week bans and 8-week bans, and as we're seeing in Texas, a 6-week ban. Most of those jurisdictions, the minute it goes into effect, the abortion providers run to a federal court and get an injunction, and the federal court essentially says, hey, Roe v. Wade is still good law. You can't have an eight-week ban or a 15-week ban. What Texas did, and the reason I used the word bounty, is they take the federal uh, and state actors completely out of it. They said, oh, the state of Texas is not enforcing this six-week ban. In fact, nobody who is a state actor is allowed to enforce the six-week ban. The folks who can enforce it is quite literally anyone else. And the reason that we use the word bounty in describing it is that if anyone else brings a suit, a civil lawsuit, against a provider in Texas or anyone who, quote, aids or abets a provider in Texas or, quote, intends to aid and abet a provider in Texas, and that's where you get the Lyft driver and the receptionist at the clinic and a counselor, any of those people, if they lose, 
uh, will be forced to pay uh, att- attorney's fees and costs and will get $10,000 for their pains. And the reason we're describing it as a bounty is if the provider prevails, if the Lyft driver prevails, they don't actually c- collect attorney's fees. They still have to pay their own lawyers. And so it's a little bit of a one-way ratchet where it makes all the sense in the world for this gentleman in Arkansas to say, hey, I'm going to roll the dice because if I win, I'm going to get $10,000. And if I lose, no skin off my back. So I think the reason that folks have been using that word, even inaptly, is because the idea is that it really incentivizes absolutely anyone who wants to earn $10,000 to bring suit. You mentioned the Supreme Court earlier. Do you expect the court to, at some point, take up this Texas case? Well, that's what's kind of interesting about the Texas case is, in some sense, the court already took it up uh, because the providers in Texas, when they were told uh, by the Fifth Circuit, that's the federal appeals court that covers Texas, that the law was not going to be enjoined, ran to the Supreme Court on their so-called shadow docket. So this was a sort of late-night emergency petition to the court and said, please enjoin this because the practical effect of this is that the first person who provides any kind of services or helps someone get services is going to be bankrupted. They can be sued multiple times by multiple people, um, and it's going to shutter all the clinics. The Supreme Court declined to take it for one entire day. The law went into effect. We saw what happened in Texas, which is that every provider, with the exception of Dr. Braid, simply said, we can no longer provide services after six weeks, even though it's constitutional. And the Supreme Court, a day after it went into effect, issued a late-night order. It was a paragraph long. It was a page and a half, unsigned, uh, simply saying, we're not going to stop this from going into effect. Why? Because we don't think that the plaintiffs, in this case the providers, can prevail in court. We think it's unlikely likely that they will win. So we're out. So that was, in some sense, the Supreme Court, by failing to get involved, really allowed this law to go forward. Now, I think, as this question on the merits of the constitutionality of uh, SB 8 works its way up through the courts, whether that happens in, uh, as I said, this litigation that now was proceeding at the Fifth Circuit, or if it proceeds because one of these lawsuits against Dr. Braid uh, goes to trial, I think it's very, very likely that at some point, the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in on the actual constitutional question. But I would note that long before that happens, they will be deciding this Mississippi 15-week ban, which is now on the docket to be heard on December 1st of this year. So it may be the case that by December, when this is argued and when the decision comes down this spring, whatever happens in Texas will be foreclosed. Bless you, Dahlia. I don't know how you keep all of that straight. It just seems to me there are so many of these challenges, these court cases to cover. I don't know how you do that. But are all of these challenges intended to one day be a real, real threat to Roe v. Wade? At some point, you got to think the Supreme Court is going to have to settle it all. 
And then I would go so far to say this is one of the sort of paradoxes of the way this went down. If the Supreme Court in September, on September 1st, when this case came to them, had simply said, this is nuts. This is clearly in violation of Roe. We're going to stop it. Because guess what? We're hearing a case about essentially the same matters in a couple of months. The court would have looked really judicious and dignified and sober and serious, right? They didn't have to do it in the middle of the night at midnight, you know, on this so-called shadow docket in an unsigned opinion, because they could have gotten to Roe v. Wade if they really want to overturn Roe. The state of Mississippi is expressly asking for that. So they could have done it in a way that at least appeared to be decorous. What they did instead was this crazy midnight order that has now precluded One statistic I saw is a tenth of all women of childbearing age are now precluded from having a constitutionally protected abortion. And they did it in the middle of the night without announcing why. And so I think it's just this kind of goes to the Supreme Court can always have a choice between doing something in a way that looks at least sober and serious and a way that looks kind of sloppy and crazy. And usually they go for the former, like sober and serious is always a good move for the court. But doing it sloppy and illogically, and by the way, on a perfectly partisan 5-4 split, just does unbelievable damage to the court's public esteem. And that's, I think, the real story here is in the last week, we've had Stephen Breyer, Amy Coney Barrett, and Clarence Thomas giving very passionate speeches about how the court is not political and it's not partisan. And I think it's no accident that a third of the court is giving that same speech. It's because they just did something that was shockingly political and shockingly partisan. Public opinion polls show approval ratings of the Supreme Court have fallen. Is it below 40%? Yeah, there's two polls. They're both horrifying. The the Gallup poll you're referencing, I think the public approval rating is at 37, which is the lowest since they've been uh, doing that poll. And then I think even just in the most last day or two, there was a Marquette University poll that showed uh, uh, the public's approval rating in the course of one year going from 66%, 60% in July, and 49% this week. And so, yes, we are seeing those numbers absolutely cratering. And I think it's partly because... Um, You know, there were some pretty intense decisions in the last few days of the court term in June. You know, they set aside a big chunk of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, They did real damage to union organizers. Uh, They did real damage to California's efforts to keep track of dark money. But all of that kind of pales in comparison, you're exactly right, to the stuff that they were doing just in September. And what they were doing just in September, as I said, is happening not in cases that are argued in front of the court. There's no oral argument. We don't see, you know, serious briefing. These courts have not percolated up through the lower courts with, you know, multiple layers of review. They're just these kind of slipshod back of the napkin opinions that happen in the middle of the night. And it wasn't just the abortion case. It was also setting aside the eviction moratorium and also reinstating the 
Romanian-Mexico policy. That was all stuff that just happened in the last few weeks without being carefully argued and, and assessed. And I think the American public is really, really balking at what the Supreme Court is doing in the so-called shadows, because if you think about the court's legitimacy, the entire legitimacy of the court is the show your work stuff, right? We put it all in the opinions. That's all that matters. All the analysis, pages and pages and footnotes, and we heard everything and we took it all in. This is the opposite of an opinion. This is the opposite of show your work. This is the Supreme Court kind of popping up like a jack-in-a-box in the middle of the summer and saying like, oh, hey, by the way, SB8 is fine. Good luck, Texas drops mic. And I think that makes people very, very anxious, regardless of their politics. But do you really think this is something that's happened in recent weeks? Could it also be a combination of intense confirmation hearings in recent years? You have statements by former presidents, by current presidents regarding the Supreme Court. Could that be having an impact? I think it probably started in 2016 when Justice Scalia died and uh, then President Obama with still, what, nine, ten months left in his presidency, uh, tapped Merrick Garland to fill that seat and Mitch McConnell uh, said, no, we're going to block that. There's going to be no hearing, no vote. We're not even going to have courtesy meetings with him. Uh, and that was in violation of longstanding norms, longstanding you know, just a longstanding practice in the United States where I think a full one-third of presidents had been allowed to appoint a Supreme Court justice in the final year in office. So that starts it. It looks as though that was a blatantly, nakedly partisan move. Um, then we had the very, very contentious uh, Neil Gorsuch hearings. You may recall they did away with the filibuster in order to to press that through. Then the even more I think, controversial and polarizing Brett Kavanaugh hearings where there was at least some credible claim that he had engaged in inappropriate behavior and Christine Blasey Ford seemed very credible and then Judge Kavanaugh was sort of shouting at the Judiciary Committee. And of course, the capstone was Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, dying just weeks before the 2020 election and Mitch McConnell now in violation of his own stated policy of not seating someone in a president's last year in office, rushed Amy Coney Barrett through after the voting had already begun in the 2020 election. So I think in some sense, you can say the problem isn't what the justices are doing, or as you're saying, it's partly what the justices are doing, but it's also the politicization of the judiciary by people like Senator McConnell, who say things like the proudest moment of my life was blocking Merrick Gorsuch. Uh, uh, Merrick Garland or, you know, I'm going to seat, seat Amy Coney Barrett with only a, a few days after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died because I can or saying as he is now saying, you know, if the Republicans take control of the Senate in 2022, I'm going to block a Biden nominee going forward if there's a vacancy. So I think the politicization of the court is certainly coming from outside the House, as you note. I mean, Mitch McConnell is not helping things or certainly not helping the appearance of the court as an institution that rises above politics and calls balls and strikes. But I think I might add that, you know, Justice Barrett then flew out to Kentucky and spoke at the McConnell Center, standing literally next to him, giving a speech saying the court is not partisan. And even if 
she really meant to say we're not a bunch of partisan hacks simply in standing next to him after what he had done to politicize the judicial branch. It came across looking a little bit like a Saturday Night Live sketch. I mean, it just didn't uh, land the way I think Justice Barrett intended it to. And so I think it's both and. I think the court is behaving in increasingly partisan ways and doing things, as I said, that you know, these are not just unpopular decisions. They're decisions that affect gerrymandering and the Voting Rights Act and vote suppression. They affect democracy itself. But I think there's also the additional problem of if the court is going to be treated as a football or a winner-takes-all sort of jackpot game, then of course it's going to affect the way the public opinion around the court uh, uh, plummets because the American public start to to look at the court itself as though this is just about power and this has nothing to do with justice. And this is a good time just to remind listeners that by design, the court does not have the power to enforce its own orders. It doesn't have an army. It doesn't have a, a budget. If the American public loses confidence in the court, the way those 37% numbers suggest, that's not something the court can fix. That's something that the court has to live with. And that's the real danger here is an erosion of the American conviction that the court is really doing justice. Dahlia, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. The former president of Planned Parenthood, Cecile Richards, reportedly said of the new Texas abortion law, it lit a fire in state politics. Sam Law is the senior director of advocacy media at Planned Parenthood. So what is Planned Parenthood's goal? What's their legal strategy here? Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I think let's start off with the fact that uh, SB8, which is this Texas uh, six-week abortion ban, um, is blatantly unconstitutional. Um, Six weeks is before many people know that they're pregnant. Um, And we have, you know, in the more than 20 days this law has been in effect, um, we have already seen um, the really terrible effects of this draconian abortion ban. Um, You know, six weeks is before most women even know they are pregnant. Um, And right now, abortion is virtually inaccessible for patients across Texas. Planned Parenthood and our partners are continuing um, to fight and to do everything we can um, to defend the constitutional right to an abortion that um, everybody um, in this country deserves, including the people of Texas. So we are in court uh, right now with our partners. Um, The Department of Justice um, is also uh, suing the state of Texas, um, and those are currently on uh, separate tracks right now. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, this is an incredibly dangerous legal precedent and could really clear a path for states to override people's constitutional rights. We remain hopeful that uh, we can restore access to, te- to abortion in Texas. What are you seeking from the courts? What we are asking the court um, to do is to block this law. Um, to restore, to block this law and to restore access to abortion in Texas. There are 7 million women of reproductive age um, in Texas. And right now, uh, if um, they are left with very few options, they can either um, travel sometimes hundreds of miles um, 
out of state if they want to get an abortion. Um, that is, you know, if they are able to afford the costs, if they can get childcare, if they can take off time from work, um, or they're forced to carry a pregnancy to term. Um, it really is a dire situation on the ground. And, you know, our ultimate goal is to secure relief that allows abortion providers the ability to resume giving people um, this essential and timely care they deserve as soon as possible. We interviewed Texas State Senator Brian Hughes. He's the author of this abortion law. And he alleges that the abortion industry, that's what he called it, targets poor people of color. And he calls that the injustice that his law is correcting. How do you respond to that? A majority of people in this country believe that your abortion is your business and it's no one else's. And politics and politicians have no place in a pregnant person's most personal health care decisions. You know, I don't think anybody wants a politician deciding their, what type of freedoms and what they can do with their bodies. And what is so insidious about this law is that it's not just, you know, this is a, a sue thy neighbor law where complete strangers, um, abusive partners, anti-abortion activists um, are incentivized to become vigilantes and sue anyone they suspect of aiding or abetting an abortion after six weeks. You know, this is insane. And you know, I, when we hear the types of stories that we're hearing from our providers on the ground, you know, a provider in Oklahoma provided an abortion to a patient from Texas who's been sexually assaulted and could not get care closer to home. And rather than taking the time to grapple with the trauma she'd experienced, she had to figure out how to get time off work and make a trip to Oklahoma, hundreds of miles away from where she lived, and find childcare. You know, there are people right now that are are traveling hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles round trip just to access something that should be their essential right. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, no matter how you feel about abortion, you don't want somebody else making these types of personal healthcare decisions for you. Everybody deserves the freedom to decide what to do with their bodies, their lives, and their future. Is Planned Parenthood working to get a stay? Or is Planned Parenthood trying to overturn the law? Well, you know, we maintain that this law, uh, this law is blatantly unconstitutional. And so, you know, we are, there's, you know, there are a number of routes, you know, we're going to leave no stone unturned to make sure that we can provide the relief that's needed to providers to resume providing abortions after six weeks in Texas. So, you know, we are asking the courts to block the law while this goes through um, the full legal process. Um, because, you know, as, as you know, as your listeners likely know, sometimes cases can take um, months, years to go through the entire, you know, through the entire, through all of the courts. And given that this law is blatantly unconstitutional and it is having an immense impact um on the ground right now. It's already been in effect for more than 20 days. Um, you know, we are doing everything we can to to provide relief to, to patients. You know, just, you know, today, we asked the Supreme Court to intervene in the federal challenge to this Texas law um, without waiting for a further ruling from the Fifth Circuit. Um, and, um, 
it is in, you know, we are asking for this expedited briefing timeline. Um, so this petition for cert could be acted upon, um, and we can get a hearing um, to be in a quicker timeline and able to provide relief to these patients. But that you know, we are leaving no stone unturned and able to ensure that we can serve um, the people of Texas, who right now, by and large, are being denied their constitutional right to an abortion. There are other states like Florida following Texas, or at least trying to. What's your response to that? Unfortunately, it's not surprising. You know, in, in 2021, we've already seen nearly 600 abortion restrictions introduced. Um, more than 90 have been enacted into law. This is already the worst year for abortion access since um, since Roe v. Wade. And, you know, I think we expect to see other copy cat laws because, you know, the Supreme Court allowed this Texas ban to go into effect. And, you know, I think when you look at anti-abortion politicians, they really made their objectives clear. You know, they want to overturn 50 years of precedent. They want to ban abortion. Um, and, you know, you think about what could happen if, if Roe was overturned that's putting abortion out of reach for 25 million women across the country. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that this has really motivated people even more than before to speak out. And so we are going to fight, you know, every single ban state by state. Um, and we will continue to do everything that we can to protect access to abortion because um, this is, it, it's really, uh, an untenable position right now. The Supreme Court is going to hear a case about Mississippi's abortion law. It bans abortions after 15 weeks. What is Planned Parenthood's expectation about the outcome of that case based on the composition of the Supreme Court now? It's impossible to predict, I think, with the Supreme Court. No one has a crystal ball. There, there's obviously a lot to be concerned about. And even before the Supreme Court allowed SB8 to go into effect in Texas, we knew that our rights were at risk. We know that they will hear oral arguments. Um, it was just announced in this case on December 1st uh, with a decision um, likely coming uh, sometime next spring. And we are preparing for whatever outcome and what will need to be rebuilt should the Supreme Court decide to overturn Roe. Because, you know, it's it's a 15-week abortion ban, but it's another clear violation of the constitutional right to an abortion and, and 50 years of precedent. Sam Law with Planned Parenthood. Thank you. CBS News correspondent Janet Shamlian reports on the Texas women crossing the border to get abortions. Okay, are you currently pregnant? This is a rare look inside a clinic performing abortions. I am booked for the rest of this week. Comprehensive Women's Health has been inundated with calls from women who live in Texas, but wanna come here, even though it's located hundreds of miles from Texas, in Denver, Colorado. Why are they coming to Colorado? Dr. Rebecca Cohen is the clinic director. Many of the clinics in surrounding states face restrictions on the number of appointments that someone needs, on waiting periods, um, on other barriers to care. The appointments are back to back all day. 10 o'clock, K 
10.10KM is a six-week surgical with PO sedation, no records. 10.30JT. Since the Texas ban, as many as 40% of patients here are from the Lone Star State, including a woman who traveled more than 1,600 miles round trip for an abortion. We've concealed her identity. When you realized you could not get the procedure in Texas, what did you think? I cried. I cried all the way from when they told me through the counselor session. I was honestly, I didn't know what I was going to do. The 34-year-old mother of three says she used money saved for a family vacation, for the airfare and other expenses. She wasn't paid for the day she took off work. So you just finished the procedure here, but you're not finished. So after a procedure, you're supposed to take it easy. I'm not going to get that option because I'm going to have to walk through the airport and everything else to get back home. She tells so me she was past six weeks when her pregnancy was confirmed in Texas, making her ineligible for the procedure there. Colorado clinics have no waiting period. Why many women are traveling here, like the mom we talked to. She couldn't be away from her children overnight. Okay, how old is she? And it's not just Colorado seeing an increase. Even with a 24-hour waiting period, this Shreveport, Louisiana clinic is booked at least three weeks out. They used to be able to see patients within a few days. So what are they asking? What are they telling you? They're literally begging to get in and be seen as quickly as possible. For women who can't afford out-of-state travel, options are limited. So I was lucky enough that I had already had money put back, but there are women out there who don't, and I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do. We watched as the phones rang nonstop here in Shreveport. Staffers telling me they've always had some patients from Texas because they are close to the state line. The difference now, the distances that women are traveling. Some women coming here are doing so from McAllen, Texas. Now that is close to the Mexico border, a nine hour drive. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, Jeff Begay's CBS, and on Instagram, Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.